Having finished the first part of this course, I would measure with you, gentlemen, the space we have gone over, take the sum of the ideas we have collected and the convictions we have obtained. We shall have occasion, hereafter, in the sequel of this course, to show that an exact and concise resume assists the mind just as the reaper is assisted in carrying his sheaf by the osier band, which surrounds and compresses it. Let us apply, beforehand, what we are, by and by, to teach. We have also, I hope, a sheaf to carry. Let us bind it as well as we can. The Christian religion has the form of a word. The divine being, who has established this religion on the earth and in our hearts, is the word himself. And here this term word signifies thought, reason, the truth conceived as well as the truth expressed. By the word the visible world was made. The word also created the spiritual world, with this difference, that the word acts from without on the visible world, while it produces the spiritual world from within. In regard to the visible world, God speaks from himself, but he speaks to the spiritual world, nay more, the word creates the visible world which does not speak, the word creates the spiritual world by making it speak, speak, I mean, internally, that is to say, think, and think externally, that is to say, speak. Christianity is a religion which is spoken and which should be thought, to think and not to dream, to think with the heart the conscience and the understanding, to think, that is to say, to know and to believe, to think, that is to say, to act and live, consequently to speak, and not to stammer, as all human religions have done, this is one of the characteristics of Christianity, one of its titles of honor. The minister of this religion then is the communicator and interpreter of a thought, whatever may be the speciality in the form of his ministry, he is the minister of a word, this minister speaks, that is to say, he thinks, the minister is a man who thinks Christianita, and who endeavors to have it thought, for, once more, Christianity seeks to be thought, hence, among other reasons, the religion of Jesus Christ, alone among all religions, has founded a church. The idea of the church and that of the word are correlative. This word of which the origin is divine, and of which the materials are divine, is a human word. It is subject to the same laws as every other word. It receives laws, it is true, from its peculiar object, but in these even, it follows the general rules of eloquence. These particular rules no more separate it from the common sphere of eloquence than they do the bar or the senate on account of the special nature of their object. Homiletics is only rhetoric applied to sacred discourse. In homiletics as in rhetoric, we must begin with a just notion of eloquence. This notion appears to us to include two elements. One subjective, which is but the power of persuading. The other objective, which is moral truth or goodness. It is not, in fact, we who are eloquent, but the truth. To be eloquent, is not to add something to the truth. It is to render to it its own. It is to put it in possession of all its natural advantages. It is to remove the veils which cover it. It is to leave nothing between man and the truth. We may be eloquent in a bad cause, but never without divine to evil the appearance of good. Eloquence dies in an infected air, but eloquence leaves pure speculation to philosophy, pure contemplation to poetry. It strengthens and embellishes itself by profitable intercourse with them, but it tends to act on. Action is its very essence. Eloquence does not imitate, it acts. The drama of the poets is but the representation of the thousand dramas of which life is formed. Public discourse is a real drama which has its plot, its incidents, its catastrophe. This catastrophe is the determination or conversion of the will. Poetry even when it simulates action, moves in the region of ideas. Eloquence has life for its matter and life for its object. It dies as we have said in a corrupted atmosphere, but it also dies in an air too rarefied. This character, 
however, and consequently the oratorical element, is less prominent in the pulpit, where teaching has place more than elsewhere. Teaching indeed is the first end of ecclesiastical discourse. The eloquence of the pulpit is called preaching, that is to say, public teaching. To require preaching to be oratorical in the same degree and manner as the tribune, would be to change and pervert the mission of the pastor. But this teaching, most certainly, may and should be eloquent. Is this art itself, the art of teaching eloquently, a thing which may be taught when the idea is opposed by reasons drawn from religion? But since eloquence consists essentially in putting the truth into its full light, since art and artifice are not the same thing, since art has the same relation to natura as civilization, since an instinct, even, to which some would reduce us, there is the beginning of art, since art is but instinct itself matured and developed by reflection, final lie, since it is as proper, or rather as obligatory to observe and regulate our words, which are actions, as to observe and regulate our actions, properly so called, our design is fully justified, unless we would give to truth the strange advice to disarm, while error and sin remain equipped for war, now we must leave the weapons we are to use, we must leave the mode of using them, we must familiarize them, to him by whom they are to be born, this is the object of homiletics, let us take care that scruples of conscience do not become pretexts of indolence and an excuse for levity, but though homiletics are something, they certainly are not everything, they are a substitute neither for conviction, nor zeal, nor talent, nor knowledge, nor the study of models. To hear a course of homiletics is nothing less than to practice homiletics. To a certain extent each one must teach himself, we know well only what we have learnt of ourselves. A course given, is not necessarily a course received, learning is a fact of the will, learning is taking, it is even creating, the whole of art, say the ancient rhetoricians, consists in inventing, disposing, expressing, this is the whole of art, repeat the moderns, we pretend to no improvement, these three operations comprise the whole of art, and they are indeed three operations, we cannot better express ourselves than in terms borrowed from the art of architecture matter, structure, style, invention is the only object of this first part, the act of invention, which is common to all the operations of art, for we invent our plan, we invent our style, is, at bottom, a great mystery, invention is talent itself, we do not teach talent, we give to him who hath, not to him who hath not, to the inventive mind, and what is mind wholly destitute of invention, there are means of inventing more, and of inventing better, the first point is to know, if knowledge does not give originality, it increases and nourishes it, no man then, no life, know the divine word, know yourself, know everything if you can, all truth tends to the supreme truth, all truth may serve it in the way of proof or illustration, next unite yourself to your subject by intense meditation, warm it with your own heat, warm yourselves with heat from your subject, let your subjects be a reality to you, and the preparation of the discourse an epoch in your history, think not only but live, try on your soul the same ideas by which you would influence the souls of others. Do one thing more, analyze according to the laws of a sound logic, the matter which you have before you, having put yourselves by meditation into contact with the things themselves, now put yourselves by analysis into contact with their idea, having applied the logic of the soul in this study, now apply that of the mind, inventing is fine dying, the same faculty of reasoning which you are presently to employ in proving, employ at the outset in finding, such are the instruments of invention, make frequent use of them, study, meditate, analyze much, sharpen, by repeated efforts, the edge of invention, which, rust without them, will soon render dull, be not in haste to recur to that bank, 
if we may call it so, of superficial minds, that stock of commonplaces which are not contemptible, which have rendered service to everyone, but of which the injudicious use has led talents to neglect its own resources we have method, rather than a method, directions relating to the choice of materials are essentially embraced in that rubric of invention which we have given in the first part of our course, but here appear two characteristics of the eloquence of temples, the first is this, although, taken as a whole, preaching is a business matter, each sermon is not one. Preaching is not actual in the same sense in which the discourse of the bar or the senate is so, it does not spring from an accidental fact, it is entirely spontaneous, that is to say, gentlemen, it chooses its subjects. The other characteristic is this, not only is preaching connected with a document, as also is judicial eloquence when it appeals to the law, and political eloquence when it refers to the constitution of the country, but it consists essentially in unfolding this document, it flows from it as from its source, the document is its object, whence results, not necessarily, but naturally, the usage of preaching from a text, before touching then the matter itself or the substance of the discourse, homiletics treat of the choice of subjects and the choice of texts, must we choose exclusively between subjects and texts, since the sermon is connected with the text is not the preacher restricted to the selection of the subject, contained in the text one and is he not excluded from subjects, properly so called, this question led us to the examination of the custom which has become a law, of retaining a sermon under the control of a biblical passage, while maintaining, for reasons which we have seriously examined, the usage or law in question, we have not thought that it should be adhered to, to the absolute exclusion of subjects or subjects, hence, apart from the text, we have spoken of the subject, the choice of which we subjected to two rules, one relating to unity, the other to interest, after having determined the idea and shown the importance of unity, after remarking that every discourse should be reduced to the terms of a simple imperative proposition, we enumerated the different forms under which this unity produces itself or is sometimes disguised, as to the interest of subjects, we determined that it should be at the same time human and Christian, and we thought to give a sure direction to preaching by urging that the just effect of the gospel, the effect which preaching reproduces and seeks to realize, is to engraft divine sentiments on a human nature, we saw that in this sphere, as in that of life itself, liberty is proportioned to submission, and that to the truly Christian preacher, as well as to truly spiritual Christians, it has been said, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's, 1 Corinthians, 3, 22, but an experience may misapprehend this liberty, the narrow way is best suited to youth, and at no age should one ascend the pulpit to speak of everything in a Christian manner, Christianity alone is what is to be spoken there, the text was now considered, we said, first of all, let it be taken in the specific meaning of the divine word, let it be taken in the sense in which that word has taken it, we were long occupied with the application of this great rule, the laws of a true and judicious interpretation, successively engaged our attention, from the verbal or external sense which is but preparatory, we pass to the real or internal sense, which is definition from the interpretation of texts of the spiritual order, to that of texts of the temporal order, and from this again to the texts of a mixed nature, in which the passing world and the world of eternity combine their elements. After illustrating these important distinctions, after considering the relations and differences of languages, of times, of the economies of which the divine work is composed, we entered into the common enclosure of all kinds of eloquence, 
in treating of the matter itself or the contents of the sermon, let it be farther remembered that the question as to texts conducted as to that relating to the homily or analytical sermon, and that we considered the means of reducing this excellent kind of preaching to the universal and inflexible law of unity, to know in order to believe, to believe in order to know, consequently, to know and believe, and both in order to act on this is the whole of religion it is also the whole of preaching, as to knowledge, it embraces facts, that is to say, what appears in a space and time, and ideas which have a reality independently of space and time, facts are described or narrated, ideas are defined, it was necessary to define definition, to establish the necessity of it, to distinguish its diverse modes, to show by what involuntary inclination, or by what necessity it comes under the laws of space and time, while it returns to narration or description, so that ideas without date and without place, are narrated and described as facts, belief, which sustains to knowledge the twofold relation of end and means, since alternately we must know in order to believe, and believe in order to know, belief, by which we mean the twofold ascent of the reason and the will, demanded in its turn the attention of Ilamiletics. We thus passed from explication to proof, which employs reasons when the object is to reach the understanding, and motives, when it has respect to the determination of the will, intellectual decision, as differing from practical decision, has a threefold source, experience, authority, reasoning, each of these means implies the use of the other two, but they are nevertheless distinct from each other, it was our first care to appreciate their respective importance, to show the insufficiency of each in its isolation. Considering next, the two first, to wit, experience and authority, as materials of reasoning, and reasoning itself as the principal substance of the discourse, we attempted to distinguish the different forms of argumentation in oratorical discourse, and a special line sacred eloquence, the exigencies, the predilections, the repugnancies of which, we carefully remarked, to reasons which produce assurance of mind, motives succeeded which decide the will, a WL founded distinction between conviction and action, the connection is dissolved when there is no affection, affection throws a bridge over this chasm which binds truth and the will together, to speak more correctly, the truth becomes itself an object of the will, all motives may be reduced to two, goodness and happiness, in the first of these motives or objects of affection, we distinguished and then reunited, goodness in itself and the author of goodness, we distinguished again, the two correlative sentiments of love and hatred, and the two eloquences which correspond to them, the appeal which the gospel strongly makes to the love of happiness, made it unnecessary for us to justify the use of this motive, for it is by responding to this imperious necessity of all life, that God opens our hearts to the love of goodness, we committed without hesitation, this honorable and necessary weapon into the preacher's hands, the motive of happiness, the axis of human life, presented to us the two poles of fear and hope, fear which contracts the heart, and hope which dilates it, fear, which is only a passion, hope which may become a virtue, around these two great objects, goodness and happiness, are grouped as satellites certain secondary motives of which we indicated the use, since it is true that the will cannot be determined without an appeal to affection, it follows that eloquence cannot attain its end without emotion, for emotion is but affection itself in the state of actuality or temporary excitement, but there is an economy of emotion, we guarded the moral liberty of the hearer and eloquence itself against excesses, we also gave the lower parts of the solar direction towards the higher, we claimed in behalf of eloquence all those moral or spiritual emotions which stir within us not the natural but the new man, 
passing in the conclusion, from the dispositions which are common to the orator and his auditory, since the latter receives them from the former, to those which are appropriate exclusively to the orator as such, we signalized unction and authority as two forces which adjust themselves to their one result, as two elements of a complex and mysterious nature, without which preaching falls to the level of ordinary eloquence, and even below eloquence. This first part of our course contains, if you will permit us this expression, the chemistry of oratorical discourse, for we have distinguished not masses or successive movements, but the substances or ingredients of which religious discourse is composed. The second part, which will treat of disposition, will present in some sort the mechanism of eloquence, but we shall easily see in what strict relation the two parts are to each other, and at how many points they are interfused. I hope, gentlemen, that this table of contents, for it is scarcely more, has presented with clearness a series of ideas, of which, as separated from one another by the intervals between lectures, and, perhaps, not inserted into one another with sufficient distinctness, the order and connection may not have been apparent even to attentive hearers. Chapter I of Disposition in General 1 Idea and Importance of Disposition I remind you, in the beginning of the second part, that we did not in the first treat of invention, properly so called, that is to say, of the faculty or the art of inventing, but rather of the nature and the choice of the materials which enter into the composition of the sermon. Invention controls the art throughout, and is applied to all the most diverse stages of the orator's work. He is always inventing. Invention is talent itself, or, if you please, all talent is invention. We shall admit, I am sure, that to arrange well and write well is also to invent. Though we have said something on the sources and means of invention, it was in passing, and in a general manner, without anticipating the more numerous and more particular details which we shall give in the fourth part of this course, of which the title, Method of the Work, intimates with sufficient plainness the special object, hitherto, then, we have been properly and exclusively occupied with rules to be observed in the choice of subjects, of the text and the materials, we have been giving, in some sort, the chemistry of oratorical discourse, since we have had to do with the elements or ingredients which interpenetrate one another, disposition, which is now to engage us, resembles more the physics or mechanism of discourse, as it has for its object the stages which succeed or the parts which are in contact with one another, I do not, however, intend to say that it abstracts entirely the inherent nature of the materials, it cannot do that, yet more, we had in view, in the first part, synthetic discourse, or the sermon properly so called, not as though that were, in our opinion, the only normal form of pulpit discourse, we made our reserves in favor of the homily, but the homily itself aspires to synthesis, analysis is but a road to reach it, a road whose length, whose windings are determined only by the nature of the form of the text, in a word, all homily tends to the sermon, all homily ends in being a sermon, in all cases synthesis is the purpose, the summit, the very essence of oratorical discourse, it was, therefore, useful, it was even necessary to start in our instruction with synthesis and not with its contrary, now, to use other terms, it was doubtless better, in treating of the sermon, to tighten the knot which might afterwards, according to convenience, be gradually relaxed, than to relax it at first and recommend the tightening of it according to necessity, obedience first, liberty afterwards, is the order, with this understanding, we treat of the sermon, as if the sermon was the only form of evangelical eloquence, our present task relates to the disposition of the materials which we procure by the first operation, it relates, in other words, to the construction of the discourse, 
Whether you announce or do not announce your design beforehand, you have always a proposition to establish, a conviction to protege in the souls of your hearers. I admit that all the ideas, all the facts you have collected, incline or tend to this conclusion. I admit that the opinions, not to say convictions, which are formed by the world, result in respect to each one, from a certain number of observations, experiences, reflections, which do not present themselves to the mind in a certain order, and which no one, after the end is gained, applies himself in arranging, such as, if I may so say, the tumultuous and spontaneous rhetoric of life, but you do not ascend the pulpit to do nothing better than this, it is with the orator as with the dramatic poet, the latter does not find in life a drama such as those which he prepares for the theatre, to mention but one detail, the entrances and exits are not made to seem natural in life, as is to be done on the stage. The poet submits to this rule, he observes others also, the same as to the orator, he does not throw at random the materials of his proof, even when they seem to be thrown at random in life. Chance with him, moreover, would be but a bad imitation of the other chance. When a conviction is formed in an individual or many individuals at once, apart from the direct influence of eloquence, it is not certain that the order in which the elements of proof were presented, grouped, arranged, was of no importance as to the result which is obtained, in the case given the apparent disorder was probably order, to which, of course, the chance corresponded, but in the composition which we have supposed the chance corresponds to nothing, the disorder is a pure disorder. Besides the element of time, that of repetition at long intervals is to be taken into the account. There are advantages from this, which compensate the want of order. Oratorical discourse which is confined within the limit of an hour or two, is entirely deprived of them. It must then redeem inconveniences which are inherent in it, by its own peculiar advantages. Order alone enables it to do this. Order is the character of true discourse. There is no discourse without it. We know not how to name a composition without order. It is disposition. It is order which constitutes discourse. The difference between a common orator and an eloquent man, is often nothing but a difference in respect to disposition. Disposition may be eloquent in itself, and on close examination we shall often see, that invention taken by itself, and viewed as far as it can be apart from disposition, is a comparatively feeble intellectual force. Good thoughts, says Pascal, are abundant, the art of organizing them is not so common, it requires, sometimes, a greater capacity to find the relations and the appropriate places of these organic molecules, is not a relation also an idea, and a very important idea one, there is then invention in this, and Labruyere who said that the choice of thoughts is invention might have said the same thing of the order of thought, I will not go so far as to say that a discourse without order can produce no effect, for I cannot say that an undisciplined force is an absolute nullity, we have known discourses very defective in this respect, to produce very great effects, but we may affirm in general, that other things being equal, the power of discourse is proportional to the order which reigns in it, and that a discourse without order, order, be it remembered, is of more than one kind, is comparatively feeble, a discourse has all the power of which it is susceptible, only when the parts proceeding from the same design, are intimately united, exactly adjusted, when they mutually aid and sustain one another like the stones of an arch, tantum seris juncturac polit, this is so true, so felt, that complete disorder is almost impossible, even to the most negligent mind, in proportion to the importance of the object we wish to attain, or the difficulty of attaining it, is our sense of the necessity of order, it is, I think, not more commonly supposed that a discourse absolutely without order, is equally well suited to persuade, and especially to instruct, 
than that a multitude is a people, that a crowd of men in mail is an army, or that the confused masses which Darius drew after him were able to compete with a Macedonian phalanx, we should perhaps be within bounds in saying that disposition in a discourse is not of more secondary importance than the mode of aggregation of molecules in a physical substance, this mode, in great part, constitutes the nature of the body, oratorical discourse, and especially that of the pulpit, has a double purpose, to instruct and to persuade. In considering only the first of these objects, we see that order is all I important. We are instructed only in so far as we comprehend and retain, but we comprehend and retain easily, sure lie, only in the proportion in which the matters on which our understanding is exercised are consecutive and connected. Teaching, in which order is wanting, hardly deserves the name of teaching. All that it can do, is to give more or less valuable information, and the inconvenience of disorder in this respect, is not merely negative. If it is unhappy not to understand, it is more so to have a wrong understanding. Now, to this danger does bad disposition expose our hearer. Sometimes we teach him nothing, what is worse, we sometimes teach him error. For truth which is not regarded in its true light, in its proper place, is changed into error, and often in respect to the greater part of minds, to pernicious error, thus as to instruction, or influence on the understanding, it is impossible that it should be otherwise as to persuasion, or influence on the will, a discourse badly ordered is obscure, and that which is obscure is weak, decision cannot be conveyed to the soul of any one, by that which bears the tremulous impress of indecision, conceive of a discourse in which the chief laws of order are violated, in which an idea is abandoned before it has been thoroughly presented, unless it is reverted to afterwards, by cutting perhaps, the thread of another idea, in which an accessory has as much place as a principal idea, perhaps more, in which the advance is not from the weaker to the stronger, but from the stronger to the weaker, in which nothing is grouped, nothing compacted, in which everything is scattered, wandering, incoherent, such a discourse is contrary to the nature of the human mind, to its just expectation, to its wants, in the soul of the hearer, as in the discourse which is addressed to him, everything begins, no thing is finished, the elements, which by combination would have formed a solid mass, I mean analogous thoughts, homogeneous sentiments, are kept separate and at a distance, instead of a bright and burning flame, we have a whirl of sparks, lively impressions perhaps are produced, but transient and soon effaced, and although none of the materials necessary to the composition of an excellent discourse may be wanting, no comparison can be made, as to the twofold purpose of convincing and persuading, between the work of which we are speaking, and another in which perhaps there are fewer ideas, but in which order renders everything availing. In the first case we had, in intellectual order, the spectacle of a great fortune badly administered, of an unproductive consumption, of a dissipation. We may appear to be engaged in too serious a work to be allowed to refer here to the idea of the beautiful, but it is not perhaps unimportant to observe that nowhere are the beautiful and the useful so closely united and so nearly interblended. The same thing is, at once, strength and beauty. Order is in itself beautiful, and everything beautiful in itself, is more beautiful in its place. Disorder on the contrary diminishes, discolors, degrades everything. Quintilian, then, when representing with poetic eloquence, the inconveniences of disorder in discourse, is just in connecting with order the two attributes of beauty and force. Let us hear this great master, disposition has not without good reason been reckoned the second of the five points I mentioned, the first being of no significancy without it, if you cast or fashion all the limbs of a statue, it will not be a statue, unless these limbs are properly put together, and if you change or transpose any part of the human body, or of other animals, 
Though all other parts remain in their due proportion, it will notwithstanding be a monster. Dislocated limbs lose the use of their wonted exertions, and actions in confusion are an eye impediment to any just maneuver. They are far I think from being mistaken, who have said, that the universe is maintained by the order and symmetry of its parts, and that all things would perish, if this order was disturbed, in like manner a speech wanting this quality, must run into extreme confusion, wandering about like a ship without a steersman, incoherent with itself, full of repetitions and omissions, losing its way, as by night, in unknown paths, and without proposing to itself any proper beginning or end following rather the good ain'ts of chance than reason, if the work of disposition is of very great importance, since it completes and perfects, as we may well say, the work of invention, we make invention a part sui generis, and independent, it is not so, we cannot, indeed, know our materials, we cannot measure, cannot appreciate them, except as a consequence, and by means of the second labor, which is very often simultaneous with the first, it has, in effect, the three following results. 1. It determines and reduces to strict unity, the meaning of the proposition, for disposing is decomposing. These two words are almost synonymous, in order, at least, to dispose we must first decompose. If we follow in the process the laws of sound logic, it is impossible that we should not look more closely at what we are to treat, that we should not have a better discernment of what belongs to it, and what does not, that we should not reduce it more certainly within its just limits. How many orators and writers have been unable to understand well the nature of their subject until they have proceeded to the arrangement of its parts too, as the labor of arrangement rests on a methodical analysis, it not only excludes and casts aside what interferes with the unity of the subject, but aids us in discovering what the subject itself contains, we see many things in it now, which we did not see before, many lines are completed, many intervals filled up. It is with order in the administration of a subject, as with economy in that of a fortune it enriches three. Finally, disposition gives or renders to each of the elements of which the subject is composed, its real importance, by separating ideas which at the first glance seem to be confounded, by grouping things which appeared to be separate, by attending to contrasts, relations, subjects of comparison, reflections of light from one idea to another, we give a new and unexpected force to each of these ideas. The small effect of a discourse in which the great foro of order has been neglected, is further explained, we think, in another way, the orator, we know, must experience in himself the effect which he would produce, this is what is called inspiration, now, without a plan, without a plan strongly conceived, whether slowly meditated, or found as soon as thought, one cannot write with a true inspiration, conceive of yourselves and the situation I suppose, you proceed at hazard, and as groping in the dark, by turns advancing and receding, the thread you have hold of is broken at every instant, and requires incessantly to be retied, instead of completing the presentation of an idea at the first, after having presented it imperfectly once, you present it a second time still imperfectly, you have many almosts, many fractions of which the sum remains to be taken, you have skirmished on all sides of the place, one after another, made false attacks which terminate nothing, one idea does not presuppose another, one idea does not produce another, in what you have, you have no guarantee as to what is to come, the passages, badly named, surely, follow one another, but are not connected, as idlers who live by the day, you write by the sentence, not more sure of the second after the first, than they as to provision for the morrow, now you have accumulated in one paragraph the matter of a discourse, now the discovery that you have failed in a first effort, 
throws you back upon an idea with which you should have nothing further to do, and these repetitions, these returns, these ambiguities, these digressions, you endeavor to dissemble by logical artifices, by subtle distinctions, turns of expression, playing upon words, this uncertain, hesitating, out-of-breath procedure most contrary to inspiration, to that continuous movement which should be as one single expiration of a powerful chest, the regret of having so badly played your part, of having exhibited so imperfectly the richness of your subjects and your thought, puts your talent in chains, if that can be true talent to which the power of organization is wanting, the discourse, breathless, bridled, betrays perplexity and fatigue from the beginning, the orator is, as it were, oppressed by the painful feeling that he has not more than half gained his purpose or expressed his thought, that he has made only half impressions, which he vainly endeavors to complete by other half impressions, this discourse which is thrown away, this combat which terminates in a defeat, oppresses his spirit beforehand, he feels himself conquered before the close of the battle. Buffon has described perfectly, the two opposite states of the man who works without a plan, and a man who has formed one, 